Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I saw something kind of disturbing when I was walking Finley earlier today. There was a used hypodermic needle sticking out of one of the bushes near my house. And I gotta say that really bummed me out because I had no idea that the squirrels in my neighborhood were diabetic. If I had, I never would have left all that candy out on the lawn. I, I just feel terrible about it. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not diabetic squirrels. It's just that one of my neighbors is apparently a heroin enthusiast, which is good to know. Really, my first clue to that should have been a few weeks ago when there was a screw-up in the mail and we accidentally got their issue of Heroin Fancy magazine. It had a fascinating article called Making an Uncomfortable Amount of Eye Contact and Aggressively Insisting on Shaking the Bartender's Hand. A two-step guide to getting served a beer that you can fall asleep in front of. Ah, but you didn't come here to hear me talk about needle drugs. Unless, of course, you were wildly misled by certain iTunes reviews who were upset about our 420 special episode. You came here to hear me talk about a comic book or something. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis poem which doesn't rhyme, is submitted by Neil Butler. I wrote a synopsis of the comic that you left on the table, and which you were probably saving for Corey. Forgive me, but Aqualad was on the cover, riding a whale. It was awesome. Thanks, Neil. I used to have much stricter rules about the synopsis rhyme, that it had to rhyme and had to end on the word synopsis, but I don't want to write any, so whatever. Thanks, Neil. That was rad. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 27, January 1987. The Brotherhood of Evil. Written by Marf Wolfman, drawn by Kerry Gamble, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert T. de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marf Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call, Wonder Girl, Starfire, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Jericho, and Robin, the Jason Todd one. Previously in the new Teen Titans. Beast Boy's stepfather, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, had finally fully flipped his proverbial wig. The perturbed plutocrat had fallen victim to a debilitating addiction to wearing a reality-altering magic hat, and had become obsessed with trying to murder his stepson, Gar. To achieve this arguably relatable goal, the depraved hat junkie kidnapped some coma patients and mad-scienced them into a team of cerebrally subjugated supervillains he called the Hybrid. To combat this new menace and to try to get Steve the help he needed, Wonder Girl asked former Teen Titans Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, and Aqualad, a.k.a. The Greatest Teen Titan of All Time, if they could lend a hand. Hooray! 
Or as it turned out, not so hooray. Because Steve and his hybrid quickly kidnapped Aqualad, took him to a secret lab, and began torturing the shit out of the aquatic ace. Using information gathered by Jericho's mom's spy network, the Titans found out that Aqualad was being held in a warehouse in New York. Leaping into action, our heroes flew to Europe, leaving their friend and ally's fate in the hands of a hat-addicted maniac. What the fuck? Well, what the fuck is that a little while ago, a recently resurrected raven was kidnapped by an evil cult named the Church of Blood, which worshipped an occasionally dead 700-year-old named Brother Blood. Nightwing was feeling all pissy because his girlfriend Starfire had been pressured into an arranged marriage on another planet, so he embarked alone on an ill-conceived solo mission to rescue Raven and ended up getting captured himself. The Church of Blood brainwashed its two avian-themed abductees and began using them in a PR campaign promoting the upcoming resurrection of the Sanguinary Sect's leader, an event which the Church would be televising live from an undisclosed location. While trying to formulate a plan to rescue Aqualad, the other Titans saw an interview with the cult's pro-tem pontiff, Mother Mayhem, and were like, Oh yeah, those other Teen Titans are kidnapped too. Let's go rescue them instead. With so many of their members being held captive, the easily distracted adventurers found themselves once again short-staffed. So Wonder Girl called in reserve Titan Jason Todd, aka Robin, to fill out their roster. Once their ranks were bolstered by the addition of a precocious 15-year-old with a few months of martial arts training, our titular teenage team zoomed off to Zandia, the Baltic island nation populated entirely by criminals, where the Church of Blood's headquarters was located. Our hero's initial tactics seemed to be randomly attacking the well-armed citizens of Zandia in hopes of gaining information about where their brainwashed, bird-motifed buddies were being held. When that course of action proved to be, perhaps predictably, inefficient, the gang refined their attack, focusing on the church's main headquarters. The only problem was that the church compound was heavily defended. Fortunately, the gang found out that the president of Zandia had a garage door opener for the church's main gate, which he kept in his home office. Planning to swipe the remote control from the foreign potentate the next morning, our heroes headed to the countryside to camp out for the night. While the tuck-it-out teens slumbered, the criminals on Zandian's council held an emergency meeting. The Titans' impromptu invasion had them all shaken up, so the perfidious parliament resolved to hire the Brotherhood of Evil, a notorious cabal of bloodthirsty mercenaries, to protect their evil nation from our heroes. The only problem was, things hadn't ended particularly well the last time Zandia had dealt with the Brotherhood, and they had a tendency to get a bit murdery when annoyed. Fortunately, a strange young woman burst into the meeting room and offered to contact the Brotherhood on the Council's behalf. The woman in question called herself Twister. She had distinct asymmetrical features that were apparently the result of experiments performed on her at the hands of the currently momentarily deceased cult leader, Brother Blood. These experiments also granted Twister the power to temporarily warp minds and give people bad acid trips. Using a difficult-to-parse syntax somewhat reminiscent of Bizarro by way of Yoda, Twister informed the Council that she was totally devoted to Brother Blood, hated his enemies, and would leave immediately to fetch the Brotherhood since it would benefit the Church of Blood. Then off she went. On her way out of town, the misaligned miscreants swung by the Titans' campsite and fucked with their brains a bit then rode her motorcycle to Japan, where after another demonstration of her hallucination-inducing powers, she contacted the Brotherhood of Evil and hired them on Zandia's behalf. The next day, after clearing their heads from the previous evening's twister-induced nonsense, the Titans renewed their attack. Cyborg, Jericho, and Starfire burst into the President's house to steal his garage door opener. The rest of the team went on ahead to the Church of Blood's compound, where they planned to meet up with their teammates once the gadget was retrieved. 
At first, things went great, with Vic, Coriander, and Joey making short work of the Zandian Secret Service and yoinking the remote control from the president's desk. But just when they were about to leave a sextet of supervillains with an assortment of phonetically spelled out ridiculous accents, teleported into the office and attacked the trio of titular teenagers. The Brotherhood of Evil had arrived. Gadzooks! Will our heroes escape with the device that is apparently so integral to their plans? What is Plasmus from the Brotherhood of Evil's greatest fear? And since Wally West rejoined the team a few issues ago, why didn't I list the Flash as part of the Teen Titan Roll Call? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so sort of, but then I guess they forgot they have it and don't end up using it for anything. Monsters. And I think they just didn't do a head count before getting on the jet and left him behind Kevin McAllister style. Man, if the wet bandits try to break into the Titan Tower, they are in for a big surprise. It's been a little while since we've seen them, so let's do a little Brotherhood of Evil refresher course, shall we? The team leader is the Brain. He's a disembodied brain who lives in a robotic pedestal and has a ridiculous, phonetically spelled out French accent. Monsieur Mala is a super-strong, hyper-intelligent gorilla. He also has a ridiculous, phonetically spelled out French accent. At the time this comic was published, he was not yet canonically in a romantic relationship with the brain, but it was implied. Hoongan uses an ill-defined, high-tech, science-y version of voodoo magic. He wears a Zardoz-style Speedo with suspenders and an elaborate feathered headdress. He has no phonetically spelled out accent, which is probably for the best. Plasmus is a big pink amorphous blob of chemical goo who can melt shit by touching it. He wears a pair of black underpants and has a ridiculous phonetically spelled out German accent. Warp has teleportation powers, he wears an aggressively uncircumcised robo-turtleneck, and has a ridiculously spelled out French accent. Finally, Phobia has the power to make people hallucinate their greatest fear. She wears a big old Dracula cape and a green and black bodysuit that has a cursive arrow pointing to her crotch for some reason. She doesn't have a phonetically spelled out accent, but could, because we find out in this issue that she's a member of the British aristocracy. Anyway, Monsieur Mala sucker punches Starfire and involuntarily Kool-Aid mans the surprise space princess through the wall. Plasmus grabs Cyborg and starts hugging him. Vic hates that, partly because it's overly familiar, and partly because it starts melting him to death. I'm honestly not sure which part of that I'd be more upset by. Jericho uses his creepy possession powers to take over Phobia's body, then focuses her fear powers on Plasmus. The big German goobag starts hallucinating that he is covered in monsters, and quickly flings Cyborg to the ground. Hoongan points what looks like a vape pen at a robo-voodoo doll, and suddenly Phobia collapses in spasms of intense pain. Jericho is ejected from her body, and Monsieur Mala runs over and bonks Joey on the noodle. But, while the Brotherhood is distracted, a badly injured cyborg flings himself out the window and hides in the bushes. Meanwhile, Donna, Jason, and Gar start getting concerned that their teammates are running late. They return to the area outside the president's house and find an injured Starfire trying to recover from her French gorilla-induced injury. Donna picks her up, and the gang retreats to some caves in the countryside to plan their next move. While our heroes are attempting to regroup, the Brotherhood of Evil earn their name by engaging in a bit of recreational torture. 
Phobia turns her powers on Jericho and forces the mutton-chopped Marvel to relive a warped version of the terrorist attack that cost him his vocal cords. In this nightmarish remix, it is Joe's father, Deathstroke the Terminator, who perpetrates the assault. After slitting his son's throat, the monocular menace turns on Joe's mother, Adeline Kane, and stabs her as well. Overcome by the emotional impact of these visions, Jericho passes out. The Brotherhood fight over which one of them gets to murder the unconscious adolescent, but the brain interjects that their vengeance will have to wait. He has a plan to use Jericho as bait in a trap that will catch the rest of the Teen Titans. Um, the brain? Not that I'm not grateful that you aren't going to kill Joey, but you're really overthinking this. If you want to trap the Titans, the trap is the bait. They can't resist walking into one of those. Just tell them it's a trap, and they'll be there before you can finish enunciating the P. While the rest of his teammates are respectively sitting in a cave and being tortured, a badly injured cyborg stumbles through the alleyways of Zandia's capital city, trying to elude the palace guards, a squadron of whom Warp is leading in a manhunt for the cybernetic superhero. Vic struggles, both to stay hidden and to retain consciousness, but perhaps he shouldn't have diverted so much of his processing power to maintaining a running inner monologue, because before long he collapses in the middle of the sidewalk. Fortunately for the mostly molybdenum marvel, his meandering led him to the feet of that most rare and elusive creature, a Zandian Good Samaritan. Heinrich and Maria are out for a stroll when they stumble across an unconscious victor. Recognizing the young robot man as a fugitive from the law, the couple decide to take him back to their home and try to nurse him back to health. Apparently Brother Blood was responsible for the death of their daughter, so they feel a real kinship with those who stand in opposition to the Septicentarian scumbag and his allies. Knowing that if they're caught they will likely be tortured and killed, they nevertheless carry Vic home with them. Which is impressive not only morally, but physically as well, seeing as, according to who's who in the DCU, Cyborg weighs nearly 400 pounds. While Maria and Heinrich are congratulating one another on not having skipped leg day, the brain reveals his big plan. He announces over a giant loudspeaker that he has tied a blindfolded Jericho to the flagpole atop Zandian City Hall. A thunderstorm has started, and unless the Titans either turn themselves in or come try to rescue him, he is sure to get struck by lightning. Fair enough. I mean, I guess it's evil and all, but for a guy named The Brain, who is literally a brain, I gotta say I expected a death trap a little more elaborate than rope and inclement weather. From their cave outside the city, Donna hears The Brain's ultimatum and is like, well, guess we better give up. Robin and Beast Boy seem to agree, but Starfire is like, hold on a second. Sure, giving up is great and all, but have you considered not giving up? Wondy is like, not giving up? Why, that's so crazy it just might work. Okay, you guys go wait for me outside the Church of Blood headquarters. I'll go rescue Jericho. Well, Donna rushes heedlessly into a probable trap in time-tested Teen Titan tradition. The Brotherhood of Evil splits their party. The Brain and Monsieur Mala explore the caverns beneath the Church of Blood, and the rest of the Brotherhood of Evil and Twister comb the city streets searching for the fugitive cyborg. Uh, really? Nobody wants to stay back and keep an eye on Jericho? I... No, I said that where the Titans were concerned, the trap could be the bait, but 
that doesn't mean that the bait is in and of itself a trap. I mean, what's going to keep one of the Titans from just grabbing Joe and leaving with him? Nothing? Okay, fair enough. You're the evil masterminds. The reason the Brain and Mala are spelunking around is that they're looking for the big old pool of blood and lava under the Church of Blood that Brother Blood likes to soak in. Apparently it's the source of Blood's off-again, on-again immortality. The Brain wants in on that living forever business because A, it beats the alternatives, and 2, I guess he's dying of some unknown disease. Bummer. Well, the sinister Cerebrum and his perfidious primate partner play Ponce de Leon, Twister strolls around town, busting down doors looking for Cyborg. As she searches, the asymmetric antagonist reminisces aloud in her messed-up syntax about how as he was mucking around with her brain and appearance, Brother Blood told her that her parents abandoned her because they didn't love her. As she is having this fitful stagger down memory lane, Twister kicks open a door and sees... Heinrich, Maria, and an older couple caring for an ailing cyborg. Twister is taken aback because it turns out that Maria is her sister, and the older couple are her parents. Twister's mom runs up and hugs her and explains that when she was younger, Twister, or as they knew her, Teresa, was kidnapped by the Church of Blood, and they were told that she was dead. Twister is super confused and doesn't know what to think. Despite her brainwashing at Brother Blood's hands, she loves her parents. Cyborg takes advantage of the distraction and stuns Twister with a blast of white noise. Then he runs off into the night, reasoning that if he stayed in the house long enough to either reason with or fight Twister, the family who showed him such kindness would suffer at the hands of the Brotherhood and the Zandian government. Twister soon recovers and gives chase, but when the Brotherhood catches up to her and asks whether anyone had been harboring the fugitive superhero, she's like, Not was anybody. Alone he was. Syntax bad is my... etc. The Brotherhood's like, whatever, weirdo. But it's clear that Twister has a lot to think about. Back at Town Hall or whatever, Donna finds Jericho strapped to the flagpole, alone and unguarded. She lassos the top of the pole and breaks it off, just as lightning strikes the remaining pole stump. At least I think that's what happens. Honestly, the art's a little confusing here. Wonder Girl struggles to carry a still-tied-up Joe to safety, managing to block several lightning bolts with her magic bracelets as she does so. It's a combination of very impressive and fairly nonsensical, which you'd think I'd be used to by now, but apparently not. After blocking one bolt of lightning, Donna drops Joe's pole. Uh-oh! Fortunately, the impromptu projectile embeds itself in the ground like a javelin, leaving a trussed-up Jericho upside down but otherwise unharmed. The Amazon adventurer removes her teammate's blindfold. He is about to make eye contact with her so that he can use his mutant power to hop inside her body and then they can both fly off to safety. But before he gets the chance, she is forced to turn from him and block some more lightning, which is again, a bonkers thing to be able to do. Unfortunately, this latest bout of being intentionally struck by lightning is too much for Donna to take and she passes out. Fortunately, by this time, Joe has managed to free one of his arms from its bonds. He is unable to make eye contact, but I guess he can also use his power when he makes physical contact, which you'd think might have come up before now, but nope. Jericho manages to stretch out with one hand, touches Donna, and possesses her body just as they are both about to get struck by lightning again. 
At the last second, he moves Donna's arm up so that the lightning bolt hits her slash them on the bracelet, which leaves them relatively unharmed because magic or something. Hooray! Then he, they fly off to meet the rest of the gang outside the Church of Bloods HQ. Speaking of the rest of the gang, Starfire, Robin, and Beast Boy arrive at the Church of Blood just as Warp is teleporting Twister and most of the rest of the Brotherhood back from their fruitless search of the town. Everybody fights everybody. The sides seem fairly evenly matched, but then Donna, Jericho, and Cyborg all show up as well. As the rest of the Titans mop the floor with the Brotherhood, Cyborg blasts a hole in the side of the Church of Blood and rushes in. So much for that garage door opener you spent the whole last issue stealing from the president of Zandia. Huh. Vic heads to the building's control center and does that Robocop R2-D2 thing where he jams a spike from his robot hand into a terminal and accesses the entire building's computer and operating system. Convenient, that. He downloads the locations of every church of blood in the U.S. in hopes that it will help him find his brainwashed friends. Speaking of brainwashing... In the caverns below the church, Monsieur Mala has found Brother Blood's secret blood hot tub and is giving the brain a little rub-a-dub. Which is not a sexual thing, it just means he's scrubbing him up in the tub, but I can see where you might be confused about that. The brain feels the rejuvenating effects of the pool beginning to take effect and impatiently urges his simian soulmate to soak him faster, which I don't think is really a thing. Above ground, the Titans have just finished beating up the rest of the Brotherhood. They turn their attention to Twister and have one of those you're not really a bad guy, are you? moments. Twister is still pretty emotional from the shock of discovering that her parents don't hate her and needs time to process everything. She uses her powers to give the Titans like a five-minute mind freak and then runs off to figure out where to go from there. Bye, Twister! Meanwhile, Cyborg is done downloading the information he wants. He has a little extra time before the guards show up, so he decides to blow up the whole building while he's at it. Setting a self-destruct timer for five minutes, he pulls the fire alarm and hightails it out of there. Serves the Church of Blood right, I guess. First of all, they're evil. And B, why would you even have a self-destruct button for your church? Once Vic gets outside, he and the other Titans head to a safe distance away to wait for the explosion. Down in the magic bloodbath, the brain shouts at Monsieur Mala that once he soaks for just a few more seconds, he will be immortal. Then everything goes kablooey. Well, at least the brain died doing what he loved, yelling at his French gorilla boyfriend well drenched in blood. To be continued. I hope that someday somebody wants to know if Twister is married and asks me, and the way they ask it is saying, so is there a Mr. Twister? Because if they do, I can be like, yes, there is a Mr. Twister. His real name was Brom Stick with two Ks, and he was the first villain that the Teen Titans fought. He controlled the weather with a magic stick, wore a tri-cornered hat and a cloak made of passenger pigeon feathers, and he kidnapped all the teens in hat and corners and put them to work making statues of tornadoes in his honor. But the Teen Titans caught him because he didn't use enough slang. Then they'd be like, uh, I just wanted to know if that asymmetric lady is married. And I'd be like, how the hell should I know? Now, do you want to hear about Ding Dong Daddy Dowd or the Mad Mod? Then they'd probably hit me or something. Worth it, though.
And joining us once again, via the magic of telephonic communication, is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty great. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Uh, it is, uh, frankly, too sunny for my taste. It has been 100 degrees the past two days, which is not ideal for a gentleman like myself who does not favor hot weather or have air conditioning. But uh, mm. what can one do? I've been really enjoying watching some basketball lately, which I feel kind of bad about because I think sports are a bad idea right now. I don't think it's safe, but I'm also really enjoying watching them. I didn't realize that was a thing. The NBA is back on schedule. Not exactly on schedule. They're playing all the games in what they call a bubble, which is all of the teams are getting tested regularly and housing together. It's safer than some other sports, like baseball. Basically, it seems like everybody is just continually getting sick. But it, it is one of those where, like, yeah, I'm watching it, and I, I love watching basketball so much, but I think it's wrong and dangerous. And so I feel like it must have felt if you were, like, a Roman citizen who was just like, these gladiatorial games are unconscionable and cruel. And then the gladiator goes, are you not entertained? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fucking entertained. Okay, you goddamn right I am. Yep. Well, speaking of entertainment, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, why not? Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Well, I was entertained. Yeah, honestly, I was too. I think maybe the last issue, how frustrated I got with it, kind of lowered my expectations enough that... For this one, I was just more along for the ride. Yeah, and I feel like we've been saying this kind of a lot, but it did seem to me this was a lot of pages to not accomplish a whole lot, you know, in terms of moving the narrative forward. You know, essentially, we, we figure out why the Brotherhood of Evil was in Zandia, which we were confused about. So thank you mm -hmm. for explaining that. And then also the Titans learned the location of the churches that are in the U.S. Yeah, which I didn't realize they didn't know. Like, they didn't even necessarily find out where Dick and Raven are being held. I didn't think church locations was a big secret for the Church of Blood. It's just, it's that needlessly complicated thing, right? Where, ostensibly, this is a giant network of churches that have, I don't know what you call them, if they're parishioners or what you call them, but, you know, people that go to the churches and probably give them some money. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably in the yellow pages. Like, why do you have to go to Zandia and plug into a computer to find that? Yeah, especially when you consider that a few issues ago we saw the Church of Blood advertising with a billboard in Times Square. It seems like a weird and unnecessary step. There was a lot of that happening in this book, where it does tidy up a bunch of the unnecessary plot elements that were introduced last issue. So it's like, great job, Wolfman, you've solved the crime that you committed. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, you know, that being said, it was a page turner, and for the most part, I enjoyed it, although there were definitely some issues that came up during it. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the cover. What did you think of the cover? One of the rare instances, actually, where stuff that is depicted on the cover actually happens inside the book. Yeah, there are elements of the cover that are almost taken exactly from a panel within the book. 
which is really nice to see. And also a little bit surprising, seeing as the cover is by Eduardo Barreto, who had been the regular artist on the series until this issue. And then the interior art is again by the guy who finished the last issue, who I keep wanting to call Kelsey Grammer, but isn't Kelsey Grammer, uh, Carrie Gamble. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the cover is just gorgeous. It shows Jericho on a, it almost looks like an inverted cross, and I think it's supposed to be evocative of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like there is a satanic ritual he is involved in. He's blindfolded and tied to a pole hanging upside down. Donna is unconscious at the base of the pole. And then the Brotherhood and the Titans are about to clash in the background from that. And it's really cool looking. Yeah, and there's like blue uh, lightning or energy crackling all over the place. And this big imposing black shadow of the the church structure in the background. Really dynamic. Yeah, it, it really is. Like I said, we get a different artist. He finished the last issue, but different from the regular artists we have been seeing, which is Kerry Gamble. What did you think of the interior artwork? You know, pretty good. I was expecting it to be a little more jarring with the with the creative change, but uh, overall, it was it was pretty consistent with the faces and the the backgrounds and all of that. Yeah, I think a lot of that is probably owed to Romeo Tangal being the inker. I think he does an amazing job keeping continuity between the various uh, pencilers that we've had on the issue. And that continues to be the case. There were a few more instances of what we noticed in the last issue, I think, of some of the artwork making the story harder to follow. So maybe there being a miscommunication between the writing and the artist because they're not as used to working with each other. I think one instance of that would be the scene in which Jericho is freed from the flagpole that he's been tied to. It was really confusing to me. It looked like the lightning was striking it, and that was why it was being sheared. Did you get what was going on in that picture at first? Do you mean the one on page 18 where the lightning strikes the pole and Wonder Girl, like, yanks him off of it? Or do you mean the completely and utterly confusing scene where he takes over her body on page 20, and then something happens? I mean, there's both of those. I meant the initial one where she frees him from the flagpole. I had to reread it a couple of times before I got the fact that it was almost simultaneous that she was snapping the flagpole with her lasso, and the flagpole stump was being hit by lightning. You got that one right away? Uh, No, I thought what happened was the lightning hit the flagpole, and then she yanked on it. Right. Yeah, I had to reread it a few times to get that. I don't think that was what was happening, because if that had happened, Jericho would be very dead. Yeah, very much zapped. And yeah, the the confusing bit with him taking over her body, we can get to that in a little bit, because that's a whole different issue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, I think Kerry Gamble did a good job with the artwork. It wasn't too jarring. And like I said, you have Romeo Tangal kind of lending that continuity to it through his inks. The creative change that I actually found the most disappointing was we have a different letterer in this issue. Instead of John Costanza, it is Albert de Guzman, whose work we have seen in these issues before, and it's fine. But he made a creative decision that I found very frustrating, which is he did not 
letter the brain's dialogue as though it was all roboticized. Mm. And so, yeah, he's still got a French accent, but it doesn't look like it's a robot with a French accent anymore. And that pissed me off because that was one of my favorite parts of the brain. Just picture him going, Monsieur Mala, this is unacceptable. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a bad choice. Good point. So yeah, so those are the creative team changes that we have in the book. We do once again see that Mike Gold is listed as a consulting editor. I don't know exactly what that means, and I maybe wish he had been consulted a little bit more, or maybe somebody had, because there are some minor through lines with the plot that just don't quite pick up where they were left off, which is frustrating when it is the same writer. Mm -hmm. But we do get a pretty fun story that moves along pretty quickly with the Brotherhood of Evil and Twister and the Teen Titans. And overall, I pretty much enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. But like I said earlier, it also was, I feel like, kind of a lot of pages for not much happening. Yeah, it does feel like a treading water issue in a lot of ways. Uh, The whole trip to Zandia seems pretty unnecessary from the Titans' perspective, especially given that they abandoned their greatest teammate to be tortured by a madman to go and do this thing that at the end of the issue, it seems like they didn't really need to do. On the plus side, I guess Cyborg killed a lot of people, so that's nice. You mean like when he blew up the church? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he set off the fire alarm. But I mean, if you set an apartment building on fire and are like, well, it's got a fire alarm, so nobody will be hurt. That is a wild supposition to make. And you see that everyone in this huge church compound had five minutes to evacuate and the Titans themselves barely made it out in time. It seems like a lot of people probably died. Yeah, that's a good point. That's pretty harsh. So you touched on it briefly, but the scene in which Jericho takes over Wonder Girl's body when she is passed out at the foot of his flagpole thing that he is tied to upside down and sticking into the ground. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's creepy. With I mean, his power is inherently, you know, non consensually gross mm-hmm. so there's that but also just like logistically it i don't i just don't understand what so he he gets into her body and then he in her body flies away leaving him on the flagpole which is struck by lightning and then somehow a few pages later they're reunited as everybody's running away from the exploding church no okay see when jericho gets into somebody's body his previous body becomes intangible until such a time as he hops out of their body. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Okay, that explains how they both got away. It explains part of it. It doesn't explain how Wonder Girl is able to block lightning with her magic bracelets. I get that if her bracelets are struck by lightning, then yeah, okay, maybe she can diffuse some of that because they're magic. But the fact that she's able to like move literally faster than lightning, which is something that the Flash can't do anymore, is baffling. Mm. But more than that, we get, I think for the first time, that 
Jericho can take over somebody's body, not just by making eye contact, but also by making just physical contact. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I, I didn't remember him doing that before. I mean, because it seems like otherwise he would just be able to do that all the time. Yeah. I don't know why they bothered blindfolding him, because as they were tying him up, he could have just made contact with people that way. It is baffling and doesn't make any sense other than the comic book rule of homonyms. Like, he can make eye contact, so I guess any kind of contact, like physical contact, I guess he could take over somebody if they had just put contact paper in their drawers at home. Um, maybe if they were a big fan of three to one contact or, uh, were wearing contact lenses. Mm -mm. Wow. That's advantageous for the young hero. Yeah. It's a weird nonsense workaround to this solution that I was like, okay, there is a precedent set in comic books that, yeah, I guess rule of homonyms, but it's really frustrating and it doesn't really make sense. The other thing that I I don't like is that specifically when he goes to make contact with her, he reaches right by her head and hair, which are very close to him, and seems to stretch out his fingertip so that he can lightly touch her boob. Oh man, it totally looks like he's doing that. Like, he has to stretch an extra foot to get by her head. He could have touched the top of her head. It is weird and creepy and not i mean this isn't beast boy this is jericho it seems pretty out of character for him and if we had a sucker for this series he, this that he would be it yeah it, it was just a weird and i was like what the fuck is going on there man yeah totally that, i didn't even notice that his fingers seem to pull out from their joints too far it's like really trying to touch that boob yeah Ugh. it's a weird scene that is made, I think, maybe unintentionally, but just creepy. Yep. So let's talk some Brotherhood of Evil, because in my opinion, they're kind of the star of the show in this issue. And more or less any time they show up. We learn some fun Brotherhood of Evil shit. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that jumped out at me is, you gotta be real nasty. <laughs> To call yourselves <laughs> the Brotherhood of Evil. Yep. That <laughs> is on the very first page. The issue is rather lazily, in my opinion, named the Brotherhood of Evil. I think that even might be a miscommunication. It seems like maybe they just forgot to name the issue. And then on the first page, the Brotherhood shows up. And when a new supervillain shows up, they get the logo treatment when somebody says their name. But yeah, that is a fun piece of dialogue. My favorite takeaway about the Brotherhood of Evil is, and I really cracked up and kept thinking about this and cracking up a little bit every time I did, is that Plasmus's greatest fear is monsters. I know. <laughs> They're all over me. Ah. <laughs> I love the idea of a grown man who has his greatest fear be monsters. Well, especially when you are, to pretty much anybody who is you, a monster. Yeah, he's a big, melty, muscly grimace in a Speedo. Like, that is a creepy-looking dude. But his greatest fear is monsters. What's, what's your greatest fear? 
oh, I don't know, uh, dying alone, unloved, not having accomplished all the things that I want to in my life. What's your greatest fear? Monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Monsters crawling all over me. Ah, they are crawling all over me. Monsters. Ah! Get them off. Get them off. Not even a specific monster. He's not afraid of werewolves or Frankensteins or swim fans. It's just monsters in general. Oh, yeah. He's got all of them. So good. Yeah, that was my favorite part that any of the Brotherhood did in this issue. And my favorite fact about them that we learned. The other fact that we learned made me feel kind of ripped off, honestly, because I don't think it had been established before that Phobia is supposed to have a phonetically spelled out ridiculous accent as well. She is apparently British aristocracy, and I mean, she says bloody cur in this issue, Mm -hmm. but nothing spelled out phonetically. It seems like a real missed opportunity for Wolfman and not the sort that he generally wouldn't take advantage of. Yeah, I gotta put it down to accent fatigue. Yeah, because the German and the French ones that he does are almost interchangeable the way they're spelled out. Mm-hmm. But he'd have to figure out a whole new thing for British and a whole new thing for posh British because you can't just leave the H's off words and add little apostrophes. So, right. yeah, I get it, but I still feel ripped off. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, he does go out of his way to explain that she was uh, a high-class lady who went evil it's also kind of weird to me that this is like almost five years since she was introduced more than five years after she was introduced and this is the first we're getting that and it's just dropped as an aside by the way she has a posh british accent it's like Mm -hmm. oh okay warp we don't get too much character development on but we do see that he likes to ride mopeds with zandian national security and that was a fun scene that was a super fun scene. Yeah, I I thought they were like maybe scooters. Yeah, the uh, go bikes. Oh sure, yeah, go. Wait, is a go bike like a scooter where you your feet go not on either side of it, but in the middle? Um, a go bike I think is any scooter or moped that is depicted in a Teen Titans comic book. Going back to, I think what the second appearance of the Teen Titans when they all rode on go bikes at the beach. Oh, yeah, no, no, I remember the go bikes on the beach. I just, these particular ones, I couldn't figure out because we don't really get a side view of them. Mm. But they look pretty badass. Yeah, they look pretty cool. I can see why Warp wants to ride around on them despite being able to instantly teleport anywhere he wants. Yeah, well, maybe there's too many of the Zandian guards for him to teleport. Maybe he's got, like, a limit. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's no limit to his uncircumcised turtleneck that he's still wearing you know that's funny i had that i maybe we talked about this in the past but yeah it does really look like a weird kind of robot foreskin helmet Mm -hmm. not a good look (laughs) not particularly but i gotta say i do like it (laughs) for the rest of the brotherhood of evil we see that they are very bad at planning like Specifically with traps, they seem to have the bait part of the trap down, but not the trap part of the trap, which is in some ways the most important part. Yeah, you could make that argument. Like, they have this elaborate plan where they 
kidnap Jericho and they leave him tied to the flagpole. And then they're like, now the Titans will have to come here to rescue him. Ha 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 ha. And then they all leave. Well, their plan was that the Titans would um, surrender themselves, right? And get locked up. Either way, they left the place. Were they just supposed to go and wait for them to come back so they could surrender then after freeing their friend? Like, what part of that worked for them? Oh, nothing. Nothing worked because they, I mean, I guess their expectation was that they'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, you got us. So we'll, we'll come give up and then they would just get locked up. Yeah, but when they, if, if they had showed up to surrender, there would be nobody there. To accept their surrender. Oh, did the uh, the Brotherhood left before? But I thought they left because of the fight. No, they left. Like, Wonder Girl shows up there. There's nobody there guarding Jericho at all. Like, the Brotherhood is like, you'd better surrender or we'll kill this guy. Come, So come here and surrender to us right away. And then most of them went off to look for Cyborg. And the Brain and Monsieur Mala went down to take a soothing blood spa bath. Mm -hmm. Like, they didn't leave anybody there. The Titans couldn't surrender if they wanted to. Yeah, well, maybe that was uh, Z-Brain's plan all along, was just sow the seeds of chaos so he could go take his blood spa bath. Maybe. Seems like he could have just had Warp teleport him there. At any point. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder why they didn't do something that would be so <laughs> obvious and not overcomplicated. Because we see that the brain is apparently dying of an unknown malady, possibly related to living outside of a body as a disembodied brain for the better part of 60 years. Mm -hmm. And that by lowering himself into Brother Blood's lava blood whirlpool area, he can be immortal. Right. And so I guess anybody who takes a dunk in that bath would end up just being immortal. It's not a special property that exists just for Brother Blood. It made me kind of wonder a couple of things. One, why all the followers of the Church of Blood didn't just like, I'll just take a quick dip while we're here. And B, why Monsieur Mala didn't just fucking cannonball into that thing with the brain? He's being so trepidatious as he lowers the brain slowly, carefully into the pool of blood, careful not to get any immortality on himself, I guess? Um, yeah, I had those same questions myself. The first one, I guess, I figured it's a secret location that they found by being real sneaky and smart somehow. But it does seem they just walked there. Yeah. And also, we've seen that all of the followers of the Church of Blood, he has big rallies down there, it seems like, where he emerges from the blood super triumphant. Nobody else in the church was just like, well, I'll take a quick dip. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that they're loyal followers of him, but you'd think there'd be at least one guy who would just be like, you know what? I'd kind of like to be 700. Yeah, you would think. Maybe his brain control of them is just so absolute that they, uh, he says, nobody gets in my blood but me. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I do have that rule myself. Nobody gets in my blood but me. You hear me, Dennis Quaid? No inner spacing. Oh, I, I see where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, man, we've barred Dennis Quaid from a couple of avenues into my psyche or physical form. Yeah, no Quaids allowed. No Quaids. Sorry. Yep, tough but fair. Thank you. 
There were some other just like kind of weird fun things in this issue. There's a scene in which I enjoyed the hyperbole here, but the Titans are hanging out in their camp, in their cave. I guess they're cave camping now because there's a storm coming. And Beast Boy is worried about Cyborg. And so we cut into the center of town where Cyborg is hiding out. And there's a caption that says, there's no welcome to Zandia sign at the edge of town. And for a very good reason. First of all, that is pretty fun. But I would say there's actually several good reasons. One of them would be that Zandia is not the name of the town. It is the name of the country. Another would be that Zandia is an island, I'm pretty sure. So, I mean, where do you put the sign? I, I don't know. It seemed very confusing to me. And just like, Wolfman, did you forget that Zandia isn't just the name of a city? All signs point to yes. That's a sign you could post. That is also followed by like a, a page after that. One of my favorite bits, which is Cyborg's just ongoing inner dialogue. <laughs> as he is struggling to, um, you know, get to safety. I enjoyed most of that, but there was one phrase that definitely did clang for me, and that I think was kind of uncomfortable, in which Cyborg says, cybernetic feats don't fail me now. That's a rough phrase for Wolfman to have coming out of the one black character in his book. Mm. Because that is a phrase that was popularized. It's a quote from old minstrel shows that then got used in a lot of like 20s to 40s movies where they would have the one black character be afraid of a ghost and would say that before he started running away. It was popularized by like Step and Fetch It and Amos and Andy and shit. And reading that, I was just like, oh, dude, that's fucked up. Wow, I had no idea. It was in a... Bob Hope movie called Ghost Breakers. I forget the name of the actor who said it, but it was one of those moments, and you would see this pop up a lot in movies from that era, where the black comic relief sidekick character would be very afraid and superstitious and would bug out his eyes real big and then say, feats don't fail me now, and then run away. Well, shit. Now, the rest of what's on that page, also just in that light, is... Not as fun. Yeah, I mean, and we also do see Robin. That this is a timestamp for later on, but there are other timestamps, so I'm okay with using this one up now as it does relate to this. But uh, he quotes the Song of the South when he says "Zippity doo da, zippity day," which had just been re-released in 1986, mm. which is another incredibly problematic movie. So, yeah, honestly. The feet don't fail me now thing is one of those where it has leaked into the popular culture to an extent that its origins have been kind of obscured. And so maybe that wasn't the image specifically that Wolfman was trying to evoke with that, but it came across that way to me. Yeah, no, that's understandable. That is uncomfortable. Yeah. The rest of his dialogue from that was, I think, really fun. His running dialogue about how beat up he was and his internal monologue. He reiterates the fact that he is only 19, which is something that I keep forgetting about with the older Titans, especially with Cyborg. They keep putting him in romantic relationships or semi or potentially romantic relationships with women who 
are apparently like they they seem to be the same age and it's never commented upon that there is an age difference but like if Sarah Sims is a school teacher she's got to be in at least her mid 20s and she was dating an 18 year old which is not unheard of but at least a little bit weird mm-hmm. and Dr Sarah Charles I would imagine she's got to be at least 30 or close to it so th- that she's dating a 19 year old who she is the doctor for is weird. Yeah, when you say it like that, it seems almost inappropriate. It it seems almost Terry (laughs) Long-esque. But yeah, I think there is a tendency to age up cyborgs specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, it does also extend to, we now see that Nightwing is apparently 20, and Donna, I don't know if she's 19 or if she's turned 20 yet, but she's been married to her college professor for a little while, which we have definitely commented on. Yep. It was weird to see Cyborg saying, like, I should just be a freshman in college right now. And it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, you should be. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit more development of the Twister character. And I think maybe we're done with Twister now. I'm not sure if she comes back. What did you think of that? It seemed, frankly, a little one dimensional. I mean, she basically has this conflict of. Uh, you know, Brother Blood says he loves me and, and that nobody else does. But then my my mom just said she loves me. So uh, I have cognitive dissonance going on, I guess, about that. It's strange the extent to which it seems like maybe Brother Blood isn't that good at brainwashing. Because, <laughs> I mean, that does seem like the sort of thing that would have been very reinforced to her. The idea that my parents don't love me and... They never cared about me at all. And then she sees her parents and they're like, we love you and care about you. And she's like, well, fuck, I don't know. I'm leaving. Yeah. And the whole rest of the issue, that's like, she's just like, ah, what the heck? Yeah, whatever. I guess maybe I'm not evil anymore. Okay. I I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm glad apparently Brother Blood isn't better at brainwashing than that. But I don't think that's how that generally works. Yeah, nor I. So maybe he's just, uh, he was distracted or is just bad at his job sometimes. Mm-hmm. I get it. He's only human, although he has had 700 years to get better at it. Yep. At this point, I think he's probably not improving anymore on it. Yeah, you think his brainwashing skills are done growing? I think they've reached a plateau, certainly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We see Cyborg do his uh, R2-D2 RoboCop thing. Where I guess he's got an information spike in his hand that he can just plug into anything and insta-hack supercomputers. So, that's fun. Yep. And a little foreshadowing that he got some extra information, you know? Or, I don't know. Did you get that? He got not only the names of the church, but some other mysterious information? Or was he just alluding to the fact that he set the church's blow-up device to go when he was saying he got some extra stuff? I think he said he got extra stuff and that he programmed the church to blow up, but I I don't want to devote any of my brain space to remembering that because I don't have any confidence that Wolfman's going to remember it. (laughs) It's There's that fatigue that I get. We've talked about it before, and I think the metaphor that I used before was that Sometimes a writer will leave breadcrumbs to leave a trail of breadcrumbs to have other storylines go places. 
And sometimes it's just Marv Wolfman being a messy eater and dropping bits of his sandwich everywhere. And he doesn't remember where they are. And I guess I should stop trying to. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Because anytime there is a piece of information like that dropped somewhere and he doesn't get back to it, I get annoyed and I'm tired of that. Yeah, you just gotta let that go. One of the instances of that happening, I think, in this issue was with Robin, where in the last issue, it really seemed like they were setting something up where Wonder Girl was like, no, you wait here, Robin. It's really important for us to have proper reconnaissance and backup in case something goes wrong. That seems like a Chekhov's gun situation. That seems like that's like a like, oh, okay, something's going to go wrong and he's going to be an important part of that plan. Nope. Nope. They just pick him up on the way back out of town. So I guess his role really was just, okay, you have the most important job of all, Robin, and that is to not touch anything and be quiet and stay out of the way. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he gets to fight a little bit at the end, but that's almost by accident. Yeah, he does a decent job when he is allowed to fight, but it really does make you question Wonder Girl's decision to bring him along as the secret weapon titan, especially because, yeah, speaking of plot points that get dropped along the way and I don't think picked up again, I guess Wally West is just gone. I thought maybe they would remember that he was going with them to Zandia in this issue, but nope. I mean, maybe he is part of some secret plan to go and rescue Aqualad, but I think they forgot about Aqualad and also forgot about Wally. It seems to be the case. Yeah. Seems like the team was not as well utilized as it really could have been. Hmm. And that's to say nothing of the fact that they spent a lot of the last issue trying to steal the president of Zandia's garage door opener so that they could get into the Church of Blood. And then in this issue, they forget that they have it and just kind of bust through the wall of the church. Yeah. Well, was there anything else you wanted to cover before we get into the minutia? Uh, nope, that's all of it. Well, one thing we won't forget about is Rick's lovely singing voice. Rick, would you sing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like hitting up first? Well, this was an unusually sparse category, so why don't we dive into sartorially speaking? All right. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most worthy of note? I could only really find two in the sense that they were clothing choices or outfits we haven't been previously exposed to. And one was on page six, and that was when Phobia was giving Joe his bad trip. His mom, uh, Adeline Kane, was dressed in what I think is a like a blue pantsuit or jumpsuit with a bright red trench coat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's it's a very Carmen Sandiego minus the hat look for her. Mm-hmm. Very striking. But uh, speaking of hats, on page 11, we meet Twister slash Teresa's dad, Heinrich. I, dad, maybe? Okay, here's the thing. Uncle? In that instance... It looks like they are setting it up that that is Twister slash Teresa's mom and dad. Because they say, blood destroyed our country, he kidnapped our daughter, killed her. But then later we see that same couple inside the house with an older couple that is Twister's parents. 
And the woman specifically says her name is Maria and she is Twister's sister. And so I guess that's just a red herring or another instance of the artwork being confused, because I believe that couple later on is shown to be Twister's sister and brother-in-law that rescues Cyborg and takes him back to Twister's parents' house. But it's confusing. I agree. That said, he's got a nice hat and a white (laughs) turtleneck and some pants that are tucked into some high boots. Mm -hmm. It's like a high-waisted leisure suit that he's wearing with a white turtleneck and a fedora. And then his presumably wife, I believe, who is, I guess, Twister's sister or maybe mom, is wearing a very simple red dress over a white blouse and has a yellow babushka tied over it. The other interesting thing about the gentleman whose name is Heinrich, incidentally, that we see about him later on, is that he has what it has to be, I believe, dyed blonde hair, but with a black mustache, which is a very distinctive look, and not one that I'm sure he pulls off. No. I'm gonna go with a no. Fair enough. The other element of fashion in this, those were the main ones that I noted as well. I think we have probably talked about this before, but the brain's little skull-shaped faceplate, I think, is a nice touch for him. Oh, yeah. It's a good look. Yeah. Nice and evil. Indeed. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Well, I feel... A little bit weird about this because it is really the character's thing, but I went with Twister for a couple panels. For her dialogue, too, because after she finds out her parents miss her and love her, she's just basically a on, you know, repeat, but with the way her grammar is kind of scrambled, indicating she's a Twister. Mm-hmm. So that, I felt like, was a bit of overkill. But also the way that her face is drawn when she has the reunion with her mom is so absolutely twisterized. It is just over the top dramatic. And then later, that's on page 16, on page 17, she's so twisterized with emotion that one of her eyeballs appears to have migrated to her shoulder. Hmm. I don't know if that's a drawing mistake or a supposed to be an eyeball. Yeah, uh, maybe that is just how upset she is. Maybe she's growing a second head out of her shoulder, like in that movie, How to Get a Head in Advertising. (laughs) I believe that started with an eyeball growing out of the shoulder, didn't it? Mm, I can't remember. Yeah, I think that is a, a fair choice. We also see on page 26, when she decides to run away from people, she can't make a decision, so she decides to twisterize everybody and run away. The panel of her powers kicking in in that, it looks like the visual representation of the beat dropping. Mm. Like, on page 26, I can't look at that without thinking, <laughs> Oh, she totally dubstepped them. <laughs> yup, she dubsteps the shit out of them. I don't know if that counts as being overly dramatic, but it doesn't seem not overly dramatic yeah no totally and i i gotta say i love that panel especially robin 
the way that he is drawn, where his neck and his head are just like kind of like a as if they were drawn onto the side of a pencil. Mm-hmm. I actually almost went with Robin as my choice for the president of the drama club, just for one very little move that he makes where they are deciding whether or not to surrender and Wonder Girl is giving her little speech. He takes his mask off while she makes this speech, either out of a sign of respect or whether it's a, well, I guess we're surrendering, taking off my mask and making sure I have a visual representation of the fact that I've given up. Wow. I thought that was a weird touch. But ultimately, I decided to go with The Brain as my president of the drama club. First of all, he's got that skull-shaped faceplate which, I mean, he could choose anything as a faceplate. It could just be a face. He could have any image. It could just be something that he likes. It could be a collage of him and Monsieur Mala hanging out. But he decided to go with a skull, which I think is a very dramatic choice. I think he was the mastermind behind the plan as it relates to Jericho. Seems like there are way less elaborate, way more effective but much less dramatic death traps that they could have set up Jericho in. They could have just had Monsieur Mala standing next to him saying, all right, I'm going to twist off his head. The tying him to a flagpole and having there be the possibility that if the weather is correct, he might get hit by lightning is an unnecessarily dramatic plan. And also he does the thing that we've knocked Steve for in the past, uh, sorry, Steve Strange, not Steve Dayton. Now we've got multiple Steves going on. Where he's like, I'll tell you where we're going when we get there, Monsieur Amala. He could have done that beforehand. They would have gone quicker. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten stuck in that explosion if they had been a little bit faster. If he would have known where they were going, they could have moved more quickly. He also could have just had Warp teleport him there beforehand. But he decided that he would rather have the big reveal of where they're going when they get there, rather than say the plan beforehand. And so for those reasons, I decided that the brain is this issue's president of the drama club. Dang. All good reasons. There were certainly plenty of opportunities for him to do things in a less dramatic manner. Indeed, but he did not take a one of them. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to take this party to the Bozo. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Whoa, what was that? That was the whoopee cushion air horn. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! <laughs> um, yeah, we got a natty bee. We do indeed, delivered by Cyborg right before he kills a lot of people. Yeah, so that was fun. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at that Natty B as it appears in the wild. But I got a couple more seconds. Why not get more info? Plus leave these bozos with a present they won't forget. Very nice. Indeed. What other bozo moments would you like to highlight? Uh, perhaps some less literal ones. Yeah, well, we had two instances of our favorite monster-fearing fiend <laughs> being referred to as Jell-O-Bod. Oh, I only caught the one Jell-O-Bod, the one that Robin said as he jumped into a tree. What was the other one? 
it is Cyborg on page two saying, uh-oh, Jellobod's moving in, get back. Ah, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I noted one of those Jellobods. I miss Cyborg saying it, but I thought that was a pretty good Bozone moment. I also very much enjoyed the exchange between Cyborg and Beast Boy on, I think, page 22. They have a fun little back and forth where Gar says, hey, you're alive. And Cyborg says, you sound disappointed. Yeah, I stayed up all night writing your obituary, and all I could think of is, nice guy, little rusty around the brain cells, but still passable. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. And then Cyborg responds with, I appreciate the thoughts, salad head. Now what say we get inside before I rust all over your ugly little face? Yep, pretty good. Pretty good. Well, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? I found two that were within five or so years, so I think that's good enough. And they were Robin referencing Ghostbusters on page 11. Uh-huh, he sees the storm and he says, Wow, it's like something out of Ghostbusters. Ah, yes, the storm, the most memorable part of Ghostbusters. <laughs> Pretty good. Lightning. <laughs> Lightning. And then on page 13, I think it was Robin again, references the Garbage Pail Kids. Yes, he wouldn't trade places with Wonder Girl for all the Garbage Pail Kids in the world. That's a lot of Garbage Pail Kids. That struck me very much as a middle-aged man writing teenager dialogue. <laughs> That's like what a kid's like. It's like, oh, uh, I wouldn't do that for all the MTV and not listening to my parents in the world. That's what you kids like, right? Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, I noticed both of those, and I thought those were pretty fun. And I already mentioned the zippity doo as that was re-released into theaters for the film Song of the South's uh, 40th anniversary in 1986. Okay. These categories were both actually pretty difficult for me, but who did you have as the Aqualad of this issue, the greatest Teen Titan, and the Beast Boy, the worst Teen Titan? So, despite your, I guess, good argument that setting a fire alarm doesn't necessarily allow everybody to escape a burning building unscathed, I did have the note Cyborg, because he does no harm to his own team. <laughs> and he gets all of that really hard-to-get information out of the computer, and gives the bad guys what for, and pulls through, you know, when he's having that, that rough time after being all beat up and is thoughtful enough after blasting Twister with after she's reunited with her family, blasting her in the face with his sonic uh, weapon to <laughs> let the family know, oh, she'll be fine. Like, I just knocked her down so I could run away and make it so the bad guys don't come back to you. Mm -hmm. And apparently he was charismatic enough while doing those things that he somehow won Twister over while blasting her in the face with a white noise cannon. Yeah, not easy to do, so uh, good job, Borgie. He also does a weird thing where right before he runs into the castle, he says, come on, let's go! And he is the only one running in there. No one else runs in <laughs> with him. I thought at first he was talking to Beast Boy, but we see all of the other Titans hanging out outside the castle fighting the Brotherhood of Evil. 
And he keeps giving his monologue of what he's doing as he does that. Uh, I thought that was really fun and a weird miscommunication, I think. He's very brave. He may have also thought that Beast Boy was there and was just like a bug or something. Yeah, that could be. And he was just talking to him the whole time. Mm -mm. Because otherwise, there is a lot of, like, got no problem with the computers. Now to interface, good thing my dad taught me. Well, it's like, that could have been thought bubbles instead of word bubbles, seems like. But, okay. Yeah, it could just be he's like a little bit of a nervous, you know, talker. External processing while he's thinking things through. Fair enough. I would never impugn someone for talking to themselves, as it's something I do a great deal. I do really like the come on, let's go, and jumps into the hole, and nobody else goes with him, though. Guys? <laughs> yeah, I considered Cyborg, but he did kill a lot of people. Alleged. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the one alleging it. So I decided to go with Wonder Girl. Because, implausible though it was, she managed to block lightning with her bracelets, which is so incredibly impressive. Uh, she also made a decision, but then listened to other input, some would say maybe a little bit too quickly, and just completely changed her mind. But I think that is an important thing. She said, I don't want to be leader, but you know what? You raise a good point, so I'm going to take your input but I'm going to implement the plan in my own way. And uh, it was a plan that more or less worked. And uh, so, yeah, I went with Wonder Girl, although this was far from a perfect outing for her. Curious. Because. Oh. <laughs> I, I had Wonder Girl as my uh, Beast Boy. Mostly for the fact that I just think her, her planning was really bad when, like, after th everything kind of went sideways at the beginning of the issue. She was like, oh my god, guys, we just have to go hide in this cave. Yeah. And Robin's just like, wait, this is your plan? And she's like, well, there's a storm. And then also, again, with the, like, utilizing your team, if you're in a leadership position, she makes Robin wait in the car. <laughs> she forgot to bring Wally. And then when she did try and rescue Jericho, she dropped him. And thank goodness he was tied securely <laughs> to that flagpole. <laughs> stuck in the ground upside down without killing him and then she gets bonked unconscious which you know with her pretty much unlimited superpowers like you said being able to deflect lightning with her wristbands and such like it was just all in all a, a bad outing and i think the team was successful not because of but perhaps slightly in spite of her planning yeah, I guess those are all very valid points. <laughs> I was just super impressed by her being literally faster than lightning and uh, saving her teammate that way. She's very fast. Yeah, and you know, she, she turned Jericho into a very effective lawn dart, which... <laughs> On accident, she dropped him. <laughs> yeah, but after she dropped him, she was able to, like manipulate the thing so that it didn't land flat you know I, I i think that was just physics no she says she does it well <laughs> okay donna she wouldn't lie <laughs> yeah i think you have very valid reasoning behind that i i think i'm just uh more in awe of lightning than you are perhaps for my beast boy I went back and forth on this one. This was a very difficult one for me to choose. I almost went with Jericho, 
he does a very good job in the beginning of the issue for the most part and enables the rest of the Teen Titans to get free, which is why I didn't end up choosing him as my Beast Boy. But after that, when he is being threatened, we've seen that when he takes over somebody's body, his physical body becomes intangible. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they could have Monsieur Mala twist his head off if he did that, no, they couldn't. Like, he could have either jumped into phobia or, as we've seen, because he can make skin contact with somebody, he could have jumped into Monsieur Mala at that point instead. And then Mala definitely couldn't have twisted his head off. And then also just, yeah, the way he went out of his way to touch Donna's boob was just very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to chuck that up to an art miscue. And as I was torn, default always goes to Beast Boy on this. and. He had a particular line of dialogue that irked me. He didn't do anything particularly great in a fight. I think he rescued Robin from falling one time, Mm -hmm. which was nice. But when they are hiding in the cave and Starfire is expressing her concern for Dick, he looks kind of stoned and says, you're only talking about Dick, which is, first of all, a funny thing to say. (laughs) And then he follows it up with, Doesn't anyone care about Vic and Joey and Raven? Yeah, Beast Boy, because those are the only other Titans that are in danger right now. Mm. Aqualad! For Mm -hmm. God's sake! Granted, nobody else in the issue is showing any concern about Aqualad, which is frustrating, but the fact that he specifically mentions every other Titan who is in danger and not Aqualad earned him the title Beast Boy. Well... I'd say that's pretty subtle, but it's 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 fair. I'll accept that. Thank you. What was your favorite panel this issue? Hmm. And a couple choices. We sort of already talked about this one, but I called it on page nine scooter gang. Maybe it should have been go bike gang. And it's warp leading the guys on their scooters and uh the headlights are all making this really cool like refracted kind of star of light yeah it is really cool looking what it reminded me of as much as anything else is that one scene in watchmen where night owl and rorschach are riding scooters across the arctic it reminded me of that too i thought that was a very nice panel and also i like to just see that many go bikes a lot of go bikes Mm-hmm. my backup i think is on page 14 and it is monsieur mala and the brain spelunking And there's a nice, really nicely drawn bat in the foreground, and they're in a cave, and it's just cool looking. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good one. It gives a real sense of uh, depth. Like, that's a big-ass cave. Yeah, it's really cool. And yeah, the perspective on the bats is really nice. And the way that they do the coloring to show that they are in the dark but have the single flashlight, I think, is really well done. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, honestly, throughout the coloring of this whole issue... Uh, Adrienne Roy has been the colorist on this series throughout, and I don't think we give her enough credit, but she does a great job, and it really, really shows up in the scenes that are in the cave with Mala and the brain in this issue. Yep, I agree 100%. Coloration on this issue is done really well. What was your actual favorite? So my actual favorite is at the end, and it's on page 28, and it's uh, Monsieur Mala lifting the brain out of the blood. And it's lit from the bottom. So like the pool of blood is is glowing. And it's just very creepy and interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that panel a lot too. I think what might keep it from being my absolute favorite is that I don't like it when the brain and Monsieur Mala fight. 
I know, man, the brain's got a lot of confidence. Like, it just would be so easy for him to get squished. Yeah, and I appreciate that Monsieur Amala doesn't, but it's a difficult dynamic for me to wrap my head around. I like how much they like each other, and I like when they are more affectionate towards each other. And so I don't, I don't like it when they squabble. It makes me uncomfortable. That's fair, yeah. My favorite is the one that I call Pizza the Hut Monsterphobe. <laughs> and it's page three and it is oh, pretty good. Jericho Viaphobia making Plasmus afraid of monsters, but he looks full on Pizza the Hut from Spaceballs in that panel. Uh-huh. It just delights me so much that he's like, Vat Mo- monsters! <laughs> oh man. Totally. And so that was my favorite panel. Not just in this issue, but I think in a long time. Nice. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, March, was Spoot! What was Speedy probably up to? We know what Aqualad's up to right now. He's being tortured by a madman while his friends ignore him because they're fucking assholes. But what's Speedy up to? Yep, I know. I feel bad focusing on Speedy when Aqualad's in such dire straits, but it's a job. Mm -hmm. So, Speedy, uh, some of you may remember, last time had a pretty bad outing. And so he's really tired and feeling bad and just kind of had hit rock bottom after escalating the Cold War tensions between the USSR and the USA by crashing his stolen Russian frigate into the USS Yorktown in in the Black Sea. And um, he had gotten cleaned up and made his way back to the States and decided that the best way he could really be of service to his nation was by entering business. And so got himself enrolled in some business school and started learning about supply chains and thought to himself, you know, what would probably be the best way to get rid of this, the whole Cold War situation is causing the communist nations to embrace one of the most American things that he could think of, which was uh, cheap and delicious fast food. Mm. So working with uh, McDonald's, he was actually able to get the first uh, McDonald's opened up in a communist country, which was in the former Yugoslavia in Belgrade. And Mm. um, sure enough, the U.S. press ate it up. There were headlines like first Big Mac attack against communism and McMarxism and all these other things. And uh, it did turn out to be arguably the most successful restaurant launch in Yugoslavia's history with more than 6,000 customers lining up um, on that first day of business alone. Also setting a record for Europe and then paving the way for later in uh, 1989, McDonald's opening up in Budapest, and then uh, later than that in 1991 in Moscow and uh, Shenzhen, China. Wow. So lots of Big Macs. Did he insist that his band, The Great Frog, play at the uh, grand opening of the McDonald's? Oh, shit, you know it, man. There's uh, (laughs) shofars and everything. Wow. Well, that is one thing that Speedy was up to, and I'm glad he had some wins in that month because he also had... A bit of a a rough go of it. See, he found out that they were discontinuing his beloved vehicle, the Pontiac Fiero. Oh, no. 
He loved his Fiero so much. He had a 1983 Fiero, and he had been saving up so that he could buy the 89 model when it came out. But on March 1st, Pontiac announced that they would no longer be making the Fiero. So Speedy decided he was going to have one last fling with his car, which was already starting to be on its last legs. Uh, but, I mean, he loved that the uh, it had the hidden headlights that popped up when you turned them on. Sure. He loved that it had the uh, speakers built into the headrests. And so he went on a road trip by himself. He decided to drive all the way down to Miami. Check it out. The whole way down, he's blasting Panama by Van Halen because he's already forgotten about his recent troubles. And, <laughs> and it's just a fucking rocker of a song. Sure. He has this great drive, and he finally gets to Miami. And then he hears on his backup communicator from the Teen Titans, he had known that Aqualad was in trouble, but he assumed that the Titans were going to go get him out. He hears that the Titans have just flown to Zandia and are leaving Aqualad in trouble. And he's like, what the fuck, guys? I'm supposed to be the fuck up on this team. So he did a bootleg turn in the middle of the highway, which... I applaud his sentiment, but the Fiero was not meant for that. And as fast as he was going, one of the wheels just flew clean off the vehicle. And it had been spinning. Bootleg turn is when you use the e-brake and do a complete 180 turn. It's very impressive, but it's also a difficult maneuver. And like I said, the Fiero was not up to it. Tire goes flying off. It was in the act of spinning out because he was going so fast. And it literally burned rubber. The tire caught on fire and went flying through the air, where it was witnessed by one Mark Henderson, who thought that was such an arresting image of this burning ball of fire that uh, it gave him a bit of a brainstorm. And he drew a basketball that was on fire and submitted it to a contest to be the Miami Heat's logo. <laughs> and that flaming basketball has been the Miami Heat's logo ever since, ever since Mark Henderson submitted it on March 2nd of 1988. Wow. And that's what Speedy was probably up to. What a month. Indeed. He ended up getting a used Fiero later. Oh, good. Yeah, he, he was able to pick up the 87 model, although by that time they weren't putting the speakers in the headrest anymore, which was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, that's a shame. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun talking about this comic. You are welcome. And we'll be back soon to talk some more Defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon. 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically via ttwasteland at gmail.com. Uh, we're also up in many other places on the internet, the various social media things you might expect to find us in. You know, your Facebook, your Twitter, your Tumblr, your Pepsi Challenge Reward Points.com. <laughs> you know, internet places. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can try looking deep in your heart. Because we'll be there. We always have been in there. And if I could maybe get you to look into getting some air conditioning, I would really, really appreciate that. Now, not so much that you would become all cold hearted. It's just you are so 
warm-hearted that it's a little bit uncomfortable for me. Corey likes it fine, but uh, I don't know. It's just I wish it was a little more breathable in here. I guess maybe I could just, you know, bring in, uh, like... See, that's the problem when it's too hot. When it's uh, when it's too cold, you can put on a sweater. When it's too hot, you just gotta ask your listeners to get air conditioning inside their hearts. So uh, I'll bring in a sweater for Corey once you do that. Thank you. You're welcome. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of material that is exclusive to our donors. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. This month episode has been a little bit late. Lisa's been very busy lately, and so we've been having trouble scheduling, but we'll get some episodes up for you soon on that. And there's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that I've done. Uh, inspired by Monsieur Mala. I did one recently about DC superheroes versus super gorillas, which has a reprint of four Silver Age stories of various DC superheroes fighting various super gorillas. It's a lot of fun. Monsieur Mala doesn't make it into that, which means there's at least five super gorillas in the DC universe, which is pretty great. But that's all up on the Patreon page. There's also a whole bunch of bonus podcasts and other material up there for you to check out that is exclusive for donors. So if you send us some money, you get access to all that. But more importantly, from my perspective at least, it's a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work that we put into the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thanks for that. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way that you can do that is to leave us a review. Just go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and say, hey, can I speak to your manager? And then when they don't answer because it's a podcasting platform, make a real big stink. Just give them the old evil eye and say, I was told that I could leave a review here. And then they'll knuckle under you eventually. And when they do, you can leave us a review like, Dick Shebodesi did. An amazing way to pass the time. Five stars. This is an incredibly fun and funny podcast about Teen Titans and early Defenders comics. Hub and Corey have kept me laughing out loud far, far longer than any podcast I've listened to, which is a lot even before the pandemic. Definitely not a podcast appropriate for children, and yet, I am admittedly oversensitive about crass jokes, and even I have never been offended by anything these guys have said, which is frankly an amazing line that they have managed to walk. Wow, you're amazed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dang. No matter where you are coming from, either someone who is very familiar with the material or someone who has never heard it, this show will keep you in tears laughing and very likely learning something new. I can only assume that this review was submitted before we released the episode where I repeatedly accused Marv Wolfman of sticking his thumb up my butt. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fair assumption. But thank you so much, Dick Shabodesi. Uh, and I'm sorry that I am mispronouncing your name almost certainly. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. And until next time, um, let's see. You gotta be real nasty to call yourselves. Tighten up the defense. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Thanks, guys. Bye.
Thanks. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the... That was the whoopee cushion noise on my phone. Uh Uh-huh.